look, there are a lot of people out there who aren't getting better with our current treatments. They deserve scientists to study new ideas and new ways forward. It's you know we we owe it to them. We owe it to the people the people the people in our own country who are um, struggling with mental health issues to find other ways forward for them and to not just make this blanket assumption that our current treatments work, which is basically the the position that I think the Ministry of Health take um, and the public system takes is that these if you just took this drug, you would get better. That was Julia Rutledge, and this is Dug It, the podcast. Welcome to episode 53 of Dug It with Julia Rutledge. And this is such a timely episode with, we've just had mental health week, I've just had a a really low level mental health week myself. I've been um, struggling with stress and being so out of balance. And um, as talking to someone like Julia, that really brings clarity to the issue and to solutions um, and to a better model of treating mental health, which is just what the world needs. Uh, I just saw recently today, actually, that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle was one of the issues they were talking about. And it truly is a worldwide issue. And uh, when Julia talks to people, she asks them how, whether anyone's been affected by mental health directly or indirectly, and everyone puts their hands up. So it really is something we need to all consider, and, and it's a spectrum of health, just like physical health. It's, uh, there's optimal and there's suboptimal and everything in between. And for those who don't know Julia, she's a nutrition researcher, a clinical psychologist at the University of Canterbury, and she's got an amazing TED talk as well all around the compelling evidence for the critical role of nutrition and mental health and explaining and exploring why this knowledge will revolutionize the way our society treats mental health. Currently we've got a a model which with just one solution really which is often pills, um, antidepressants which have long-term consequences which work for only a tiny percentage of the population and this new model of integrative integrated medical model we treat lifestyle we treat with lifestyle stress reduction and then medication really is the future and her treatment through nutrients is two percent the cost of the current model it has 50 percent plus in many cases results with long-term solutions and without the side effects and it really is just the way forward i know how important nutrition is it's just a game changer and we cover all of that and so much more. Really appreciate Julia's time. She's so busy doing the research that she's doing, as well as having a family and having teenage boys and everything else that goes on in life. And she's so resilient and steadfast in her mission and her purpose to really change the system and to help everyone with with their mental health and providing better solutions. So I'll include everything in the show notes. She's got some amazing... Uh, recommended nutrients and products that I'm getting off her team so I'll put that in the show notes too if you're interested Um, and also they're doing funding and research uh, looking at funding for their research at the moment and also participants to lend a hand in their studies particularly pregnant women as well so if you can help out financially or just give your time and participate that would just be 
a life changer quite literally so oh it's an exciting one let's get into it here is Julia Rutledge Hi, Doug. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I can't see you at the moment. Oh, okay. Wait, let me see if I can um, turn that on. Oh, there we go. I just rewatched your Food for Thought talk last night and um, the TED talk, and mm-hmm. it was so fantastic. Such a wonderful presenter. But if people don't know about your work, how would you describe it? what you're doing and, and, and where your passion and purpose lies at the moment. Right. I mean, we all know that there is a mental health crisis and it doesn't take very long to figure out that there is uh, a problem with our current treatments in that not enough people are getting well. Some people do incredibly well with the treatments that we current have, currently have on offer. Medications, uh, for some people, they save lives. Psychotherapy, many people can re- respond very well to, to psychotherapy and um, carry very fulfilling lives afterwards. But access to psychotherapy is challenging, as I talked about in my Food for Thought one in particular. And I've gone through and, and come to the conclusion that it's unrealistic for us to think that the solution is to just make sure that everyone can have access to one-to-one therapy. Um, it's, not, it's not realistic, A, because we don't have enough uh, psychologists and psychotherapists out there, but also there are many people who don't respond to that treatment, so we can't just assume that that's, that's the only thing that we should be doing. Um, and then, of course, to try to train enough people to actually meet the demand is completely unrealistic. It just cannot be achieved unless we did a major rehaul of what the qualifications are that are required for someone to do psychotherapy at the moment. It's a minimum of seven years of university to become a, a, a clinical psychologist. Uh, and in, in Canada, it was 11. I did 11 years to become a clinical psychologist. Um, and that's just an unrealistic uh, bar to to we just can't and we we just don't train enough people and um and they're very specialized uh they you know they they can they they do work with the severe end um but we just need to i think we just need to look for more solutions and one of the solutions that is uh facing us and is is immediately in front of us is to really consider lifestyle factors as contributing to um the presentation of mental unwellness so the lifestyle factor that I'm targeting is, of course, nutrition. And so we are looking to see whether or not we can put this on the map. It does seem, I think, for people who attended Food for Thought, it probably seems a little um, unusual that we need to talk about it so much. And uh, and it, I suspect a lot of people see it as completely obvious. Um, but if you were to go see a clinician in a mental health service, a public service here in this country, they would very unlikely likely talk to you about your food and what you're eating. Um, They would offer you probably a drug first because we know that 13% of New Zealanders are currently on an antidepressant, so they're clearly dishing those ones out pretty regularly. And um, and you might be lucky if you were to be offered services in terms of psychotherapy, but you'd have to be in the top 3% of the population in terms of how unwell you were. So unlikely that you'd get offered that um, alternative, and you certainly wouldn't be offered a dietitian 
that just just it's, it's, it doesn't happen. There aren't dietitians um, involved in services, or if there are, there's usually one. So that's that's what I'm trying to really do. Um, uh, you know, put my place my efforts in is to um, is get people to recognize that a nutrition is important. R and B, do it in a way that is very hard to argue with. So our studies are done by giving people additional nutrients. So in a pill form, we give people more vitamins and minerals than you you typically get out of your diet. We compare your response and your change in your mental health status compared to a placebo. And then we make the decision, we, we evaluate whether or not those who were randomized to the active are doing better after you know an eight, 10 week period relative to the placebo group. And our research confirms that indeed they, that does happen. Not everyone gets better. I certainly don't want to say this is the be all and end all of everything, but it's certainly a powerful enough effect that I just don't know why not enough people in, in positions of power are paying attention to it. How's that for a story? <laughs> that, that, that took me five minutes. <laughs> no, that's um, fantastic. That, I mean, that was one of my questions was why, why do you think the current system is so slow to change or why do you think there is resistance to these models? Yeah, well, um, when you've, I mean, I, I'll just be sympathetic to, I don't think people are in, in an un unintentionally being harm, you know, ill-informed or are deliberately trying to avoid the, uh, considering the role of nutrition. But when you've been, um, trained in a certain way of thinking, it is very hard to shift away from that perspective. So for practitioners like psychiatrists and general practitioners who were the ones who were prescribing the medications, they have been trained in the in a medical model that has really pushed the chemical imbalance theory of of mental illness. And that is that you simply have something wrong with your brain in terms of its brain chemistry, and that the only way to fix that is through uh, giving somebody a chemical uh, manufactured in the lab that will, um, will regulate that. And the thing is, is that there's never been any proof for that that theory, and that's it's astounding to me that it's believed so strongly without the science to back it up. Um, it was it was it's just been you know when you read about you know it's just sort of a given. It's it's just a, a like you know water has hydrogen and oxygen. It's this thing this this assumption that it is true, and it's been really. Um, made me feel very uncomfortable when I've dug into this area of research and uncovered that I couldn't find any solid data to support that particular theory. So, um, but it took a lot of time for me to, to come to that conclusion. And I've done a lot of reading over the last 15 years on this topic. So, uh, you know, it's something that I've become quite interested in is just saying, well, just show me the evidence and show me that this is actually legitimate. It does do, I mean, that's not to say that antidepressants don't do something to your brain. They absolutely do. They do affect neurotransmitter function. We know that very well. Um, and that's why so many people experience withdrawal when they come off of these drugs, which 
which is um, a, a serious problem that, again, we're not talking enough about um, that side of the uh, prescription as well. Not only um, are they not working as well as we um, think they are, uh, but they are also very hard to come off of, and that part really does worry me. Um so where was I going? Uh, you asked, why don't people... Okay, so then when it comes to psychologists, which I am, I'm a clinical psychologist, and mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, I think what clinical psychologists do is is can be life-changing. And I, I'm to the point where I think the whole population should know the skills that we have. You know, why keep it to the professionals? I think we, we have a responsibility to disseminate the information that we have um, far more broadly to the public in ways that are palatable, are digestible, um, such that you don't have to feel you have to go see this, um, you know, a, a profession that is incredibly rare in order to get some skills that I think we should all have, which is know that, you know, ch- challenging your thoughts and, uh, it, you know, that thoughts are thoughts and we can, we can, um, we can shift them. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's not necessarily that hard to shift them. We need to challenge sometimes our thoughts that can get us um, spiraling down into either anxiety and depression, the most common uh, symptoms of, of um, you know, unhelpful thoughts that we, we, you know, learn about the importance of exposure for anxiety, things like that. I think those are things that we could share more broadly, such that it's just part of the common knowledge of our population. So that's, um, uh, so, I mean, so, but psychologists have their bias as well and that they, think that that is the way to treat psychiatric mm-hmm. and psychological problems. And again, they've been, you know, they, I have to say psychologists have been a bit more open to this idea relative to psychiatrists. I've been invited to uh, speak, for example, at the New Zealand College of Psychologists in April, their annual conference. So that does indicate to me that they do want to know more. Um, I do workshops around the country to psychologists, uh, trying to help them just better understand the role of nutrition. So, definitely, um, some a lot of work to be done. But people are just, we, you know, we're slow, we're resistant mm-hmm. to change, and so uh, perhaps I, I, that's my positive uh, answer to your question. I mean, there's the cyni- the cynical side <laughs> is quite different. Yeah, fantastic. And what um, what what got you really passionate about the nutrition side of it? How did you? kind of veer in this angle um was this a passion or a problem you had growing up or i mean because you speak with such enthusiasm and and passion it's so compelling and you just want to like everyone everyone yeah everyone i've spoken to that's listened to your ted talk has just said how amazing it was and um oh good to hear except except ted but anyway (laughs) we won't go there we don't have to go there Um, um unless your listeners want to go there but to answer your question um why am I so passionate about this? Well, I, I, I grew up in a time, I mean, people might be quite surprised at a time where, you know, in the 70s where uh, uh, families were embracing processed food, um, sugar was not evil, uh, sugar was you know, spread all over your breakfast cereals um, in a way that uh, appalls me now, but I was certainly not, uh, I, I did not grow up in a family that was food conscious. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're asking me. So um, I loved Cheerios, and I I hate to admit that now, but um, that was that was 
you know, I, I had no reason to think that this was something that you should perhaps um, think twice about consuming. So, um, so I, I and I went through clinical psychology training um, uh, with the understanding that nutrition was irrelevant to mental health. Um, my area of research is in ADHD. I went through my training in the 1990s at a time when medication tr- medication trials with stimulants were just showing uh, over and over again how positive this tr- this drug was, how um, how many people, how many children in particular were being uh, were responding to this approach, and so there was no reason to think that there that there was uh, there should be we should be exploring other ways. Um, nutrition had been sort of uh, talked a little bit about and explored in the 1980s when it came to an, an ADHD, but it really just lost momentum when medications took off, and uh, and and people just ignored that area of research. And it's difficult to do. It's very very difficult to manipulate diet. And at the time, they were talking about food additives as being a problem, and the food, um, you know, the food colors, and that they were likely contributing to ADHD behaviors. It's incredibly difficult to do that in a blinded way. So to get, you know, <laughs> it's 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 hard to disguise that you're eating something different. So, and not all children are, are respond to the removal of those, um, those, those, uh, uh, additives in our food anyway. So then, um, but what happened to me was that in the, towards the end of my PhD, my, um, PhD supervisor, Professor Bonnie Kaplan, who is now um, retired, um, but she was approached by some families from Southern Alberta, Canada, and I was doing my PhD at the University of Calgary, and she, they claimed that they could they could treat very serious psychiatric disorders with nutrients, so added nutrients, vitamins and minerals, amino acids, micronutrients. And she was very skeptical, as a scientist typically is, um, and particularly because it's it's been refuted, the idea of using nutrients um, has been refuted over the years, but it's probably because uh, the science was done in a way that was incorrect. It, uh, it, it the people were exploring the role of a single nutrient and not multiple nutrients in combination, which is a very different approach. Single nutrients on their own are unlikely to confer a large effect because they actually work in, in tandem with other nutrients. So we don't just, you know, it's like eating just one food group, but we wouldn't do that. So, um, so I heard about her, her, you know, this, what had happened. She agreed to, to, um, to do some very preliminary clinical trials, um, um, in the end, late part of the 1990s, early 2000s, published some really interesting and intriguing preliminary studies showing the uh, the power of just using nutrients to treat bipolar disorder. Um, they were open label, so they're always criticized by scientists as as um, you know being caused by you know the the benefit is because of the placebo effect, which is very hard to argue when they're when they're done when a scientific design when a design is done in that way. But it was intriguing, and I have great respect for Bonnie. And when she said, "Julia, you really should be thinking about studying these nutrients." Um, I ignored her for a while. Uh, I, you know, at that point, I moved to New Zealand. I had ch- kids in 2001, 2002, so I was a little bit distracted. I was doing other type of research. But eventually, I came to around and, and was like, well, 
you know, the outcomes for people with mental illness, I mean, what the type of work that I was doing was comparing, say, kids, adolescents with ADHD with adolescents who don't have ADHD, but they were all from the community. They were all receiving the gold standard of care. And it, and you, if they're if they if the gold standard of care really is working you should have no difference between people who have been identified with ADHD and people who have not don't have ADHD does that make sense they should be starting to look similar in their cognitive functioning and their emotional functioning and the levels of symptoms that they're displaying but they don't so you know you, you we've got to feel uncomfortable with that because if you know, if if you have a broken arm and you get treated, you shouldn't then still have a broken arm. You shouldn't continue to have those types of symptoms associated with a broken arm. We expect it to be healed and to be the same as a an arm that that's not broken. Do you follow what I'm saying yeah. around the yeah. importance that, that the treatment should work? So it's not to say that some people don't get well, but it's just that people continue to have residual symptoms. So as a scientist, um, we are the critics and conscience of society. And I, that's, I've, I've always um, been outspoken, probably in other areas. I mean, it's you know, not just nutrition, but when I get involved in something and really believe in it, then I, I follow it through and, and, and get immersed in it. And in this case... It was, um, it, it, to me, it was like, well, let's just study it. I mean, it's not that hard to study the, if, the idea of nutrients being relevant to brain health. So I decided to do some very preliminary trials. Uh, you know, it, even though it's controversial and it contravenes current way of thinking, really must, um, you know, play that role of, of evaluating treatments for the benefit of the public. So, um that was it. That really was it. It wasn't that I thought this was going to be the miracle cure. It was just a scientific question. So um, we restarted to run clinical trials, preliminary ones in 2007, 2008, 2009, very slowly, very hard to get off the ground because I met with opposition, opposition from ethics committees. I had opposition from funding um, people. I had massive opposition from the medical community in, in, in that we struggled to recruit because people wouldn't send us patients. So, um, and it was completely unexpected. I was so naive um, thinking this could be a simple thing, a simple question to answer. So, but we've persevered, and it was—it's a good place to to be at least because in Canada, Bonnie was struggling with Health Canada was giving her major problems, and I didn't have problems with Pharmac until well into our clinical trials. So we didn't start to to have tr trouble from them until 2000 and I think a couple of years ago it was I think it was 2016. It was when I started to um, get involved in protesting against the natural health products bill that. Um, Pharmac started to go, oh, what, what's this person doing down in Christchurch? She's running clinical trials. Um, she's having therapeutic effects. That makes it a medicine. You know, these, these, in, you know, these challenges associated with doing something that actually shows that it's working. So um, I'm passionate for it because we are we are helping some people. Some people are um, doing really well. I receive emails uh, daily from members of the public from around New Zealand, around the world, uh, telling me their stories about how uh, medications or other treatments have not 
um, being effective for their child, their so, their daughter, their their spouse, ex, their family members. Um, and I have chosen to listen to those stories and feel that someone has to be the voice for those people, and uh, and to um, you know rattle the cage and say, look, there are a lot of people out there who aren't getting better with our current treatments. They deserve scientists to study new ideas and new ways forward. It's, you know, we, we owe it to them. We owe it to the people, the people, the people in our own country who are um, struggling with mental health issues to find other ways forward for them and to not just make this blanket assumption that our current treatments work, which is basically the the position that I think the Ministry of Health take um, and the public system takes is that these if you just took this drug, you would get better. And I'm saying, talk to people, find out, find out if that's actually the case. And it, were you at the Food for Thought? Um, were you there? No, my, my girlfriend was sick. I was meant to be there, but I watched the talk and I saw your research on, you know, some of the graphs you had about yeah. the long-term effects Yes. Yeah, no, but uh, I mean, the data is there, but I do it. I mean, on the personal level is that I asked that audience, I said, how many people in this audience um, have a friend or family member who struggles with mental illness? And inevitably the entire room, everyone puts their hand up. And then I say, and how many people feel that conventional treatments have resolved their problems? Not a single hand went up in that audience. So there was one, um, there was one politician there. And I said, you need to look around. And this is what I, this is the response I get every single time mm-hmm. I do a talk in this country. So are we going to ignore the fact that just, just like that, that when, you know, not enough people are feeling that they're getting well, isn't that something we need to have a conversation about? And because, but the challenge is, is that mental illness, there's so much stigma surrounding it that you're brave enough to go to see your doctor, right? And you're, you're feeling low, you're feeling down. It's, it takes an enormous amount of inertia to go and tell someone else and, and, and courage. You then go see your doctor. They say, hey, you know what? I've got this treatment for you. Um, here's a pill. It's a, you know, they're called antidepressants. You assume, oh, wow, that's what I need. I feel depressed. I need an antidepressant. And you start to take it. And for some people, as I said, it's great. But for many people, they'll report that they don't feel necessarily a lot better. They might have a shift in their symptoms, but they're not back to where they were before. But they may not necessarily want to tell, you know, their friends, you know, I took this antidepressant and I still don't feel great. Is that necessarily the types of conversations people are having? I'm I'm not convinced they are. I think they're feeling isolated. They they might even think well, it's just me here. I mean, I'm so, you know, awful and um, I'm so um, useless that even the drugs don't work for me. Mm. Right. And so that's, that's my worry is that we're not having that conversation about that and that recognition that it's not, it's not helping enough people and particularly in the long term. So Mm. what was your question? I think well, it's all. I think the answers are all there. But um, I was really yeah. interested in. Uh, I mean, uh, my 
dad's had depression and um and my brother's had uh, mental breakdowns anxiety and it's that's been prevalent in my family and with friends and even i've had some low episodes recently and um looking at all those lifestyle factors i know even jordan peterson's book his first treatment is to make sure people are getting eight hours sleep or waking up at a regular time mm-hmm. and, I, and i wondered what um someone who is feeling a bit low um what are your top tips because obviously the, the micronutrients um but are there other you know how does someone even look at a micronutrients is it just buying a multivitamin if they're just getting yeah. started um I know Ben talks a lot about the omega threes and the essential fatty acids, and um, yeah, I was interested in your kind of top, say, your top three tips or couple of tips <laughs> if someone is just yeah wanting to go down that path. Um, as researchers tend to be a little bit more hesitant about giving the top tips because we're always at that stage of discovery and wanting to know more and not feeling ever that confident that we've got the absolute 100% solution. So, um, but I think our research is strong enough to say that, um, and and not just ours. Um, I, I, I give great credit to other people from around the world who have, um, also been this, doing this type of work in, in other areas like the omega threes. We don't do research on omega threes in my lab at the moment or doing diet manipulation studies. And so the, the overall take home message is, is very simple one from the research. And that is that the more you eat processed foods, then that's just not going to be good for your brain because it's nutrient poor. So you want to be eating foods that are nutrient rich because those are, those nutrients are essential for your brain to function optimally. And what foods are nutrient rich? We, we all know the answer to that one. It's your fruit and your vegetables. And if it's, if there are certain fruit and vegetables that are expensive, then you go for ones that are going to be in season and um uh, you know kale always cheap there's not that <laughs> such a you know it's a fantastic um a, a food choice brussels sprouts i know that not a lot of people like them but there are great ways to cook brussels sprouts um that can make them quite tasty they are so nutrient dense so there you know there's just a few examples so um, shifting, shifting towards the incre- including fruit and vegetables in your daily consumption. I mean, they, the Ministry of Health say five. You know, I, I wouldn't stop there. If you're loving them, then keep going. Um, nuts are another uh, great source of, of uh, nutrients, so you won't go wrong there. And just decreasing processed foods over time. It's not something that you can necessarily do as easily like as overnight, but just being aware of the packages in your in your cupboard and making a conscious effort to try more eating things from scratch if you can getting involved in um in cooking uh learning getting cooking skills getting back to those types of basics because if you cook you're less likely to eat consume processed foods so it is it does require a lot more preparation and forethought so again it's not going to happen overnight but i think as a as sort of as a society we could be helping people move in that direction 
So that would that would be my thoughts on food. Nutrients in pill form, the way we do it, um, some people may need more nutrients than they, what they can get out of their food. Um, I don't recommend going to a supermarket uh, at this stage because of the laws on as soon as you make a nutrient therapeutic, it becomes a medicine and it becomes much harder to for people to get access to it. It's the irony of it. Um, I do tell people just to email my lab because we like to provide the information in um, in its entirety, entire form, without uh, with making it very clear that we have no commercial affiliations with any of the companies that have uh, made the products that we we give information on. So. Our email is mental health nutrition, which is really easy. One word, mental health nutrition at canterbury.ac.nz. And one of my amazing graduate students will reply with all of the information. We it would be easier for us to provide it on our website, but we um, I, we we've been accused so many times of being affiliated with the with supplement companies that I can't risk making it look like we are out there trying to sell a specific type of product. So we do it this way. It's more time consuming for us, but at the moment, this is how I feel comfortable about providing that type of information. So the nutrients are available. They are available in New Zealand. Um, they do cost. So that is the challenge of taking a nutrient supplement that has been shown by research to be uh, found to be useful. You won't get the right dose typically from one that you purchase in the supermarket. That's unlikely. Um, so other tips would be, I mean, the obvious ones as well is that, you know, as, as um, Sarah talked about in her talk was get out and exercise. And, you know, if you can get 30 minutes a day, um, I always try to get people to think about how you can incorporate it into your day, because a lot of the time that gets as an add on and you get to the end of the day and you're exhausted. And the last thing you want to do is, is walk for 30 minutes or do something for 30 minutes. And so you know, going up and down the stairs, don't take the lift. I mean, just sort of obvious little changes that, you know, it's again, step-by-step changes that you can make in your daily life. I, you mentioned sleep. Absolutely. Goodness. I've, I, I've never done an all-nighter. I never would. Um, I, I, I sleep is absolute priority to me and, um, ensuring that I, you know, essentially always go to bed at the same time, wake up typically at the same time. So, at least eight hours is 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 optimal. Some people can get away with less, but I think they're they're rare. And if you say you're getting away with less, but you're not feeling great, I might suggest that that's probably not working. Um, eat breakfast every day. Um, so many people skip breakfast, um, but I think that's an essential. Uh, start to your day, making sure that your brain can start with some nourishment so you can actually concentrate. Um, how's that for a few ideas to get started yeah. anyway? And then I mean, yeah, and then challenging thoughts and and seeing thoughts as thoughts and thoughts are not, you know, they're they that's all they are and and try not to dwell on them and let them go. Yeah, fantastic. I know. I just had a, did a camp with some teenage boys around kind of helping them optimize their mental health. But I know, like you mentioned, you've got a couple of teenagers yourself. Um, but I heard research that teenagers are sleeping about five hours a day or something on average now crazy with with devices and and yeah and that and and how 
that's pushed yeah. accident rates up. That their yeah. um, their cognitive function in exams and school is, I think, it's a, a physical and cognitive decline by about twenty percent just for getting less than seven that's or eight cool. hours. And yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, it's the device. The devices are concerned not just for teenagers, but for all of us. Um, we have we have um, rule no devices overnight, so they get delivered downstairs at eight thirty. So that is uh, what happens in our house. It's a hard one sometimes to enforce, but our boys, I can confidently say, are getting adequate amounts of sleep. Mm. So. Um, you know, that's one thing where we're getting things right in our family. And that's been important to establish that rule though early on. Cause once you, if you sort of let things slide and then go, Oh, they're teenagers. Now we better get this right. Uh, sometimes that's going to be, it's going to be a lot more difficult to take away something that they've had rather than that. They've never had it. So, yeah, uh, that's... but they, uh, it's, I mean, we all know that you shouldn't, there's no good reason to have your device in your room. It just, you know, in your, when you're in your bedroom before sleep, there's no, it just uh, make it a rule, mm. not allowed, keep them downstairs, put them downstairs, charge them out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Love it. And I know, I know in your talk, you, um, you talked about Michael Pollan's book, the Omnimore's Deliver and his message around eating whole foods. And are there yeah. any other, any other books or researchers you really, um, really enjoy or that you'd recommend? Um, there, there's tons of books. I mean, where do I start? I mean, if on the nutrition one, I loved Michael Pollan's book. Um, I came across a book that was sent to me that was by a woman called Susan, Suzanne Lockhart, and she wrote The Mad Diet. And um, I, she herself struggled with depression, and uh, but also worked in the food industry. I, I just I just thought it was a very readable book and made a lot of sense and I, I, I that's probably one of the best ones that I've come across um, in terms of just helping people recognize how important food is to your brain and that we need to be shifting what we eat in order to feel better. Fantastic. Um. Uh, other books, I'm trying to think. Uh, uh, Trudy Scott's Anti-Anxiety, what was hers called? I can't remember, quite remember the full title. Um, but that one was uh, that, that was a, a very solid, um, well-supported, well-resourced book on foods to eat to support, uh, to reduce anxiety. So that was an, another one that comes to mind. Uh, but there aren't a lot of books. I know Felice Jaca has one coming out very soon. And I suspect that one will be a very uh, good book. Um, she's a professor at, in Melbourne at Deakin. And I know that will be a solid reference. So, and one day I might write a book, but it hasn't happened yet. Don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ben mentioned how you produced over 200 different papers and, um, well, he was quite—he was inaccurate there. Was it's, only a, it's only a hundred. I think he's—he's he's doubled it. Um, he, I think he was thinking about other types of, of publications as well. But from yeah. a scientist's perspective, we only count the peer-reviewed publications. So, so we're at a hundred. It's that's still a good number. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I—I I was trying to wave to him and to say no. Where did you that? We can clarify that. Um, but because I know there's so much research and 
like what Viome are doing in the States and microbiome and I know there's uh, a lot of research and common knowledge more about mitochondria function. Uh, people like Dave Asprin, there's a wonderful longevity series I saw which looked at a lot of mitochondria function for different diseases. Is there any, any other research you're really excited about? Um, I know Peter Diamandis always talks about we're living in the greatest ever time to be alive and we can we can research everything yeah. and get access to everything. Like what's yeah. really exciting for you at the moment? Um, maybe it's in your own right. research or out of it or someone yeah. else's. I mean, I, I agree. I think we are at a really exciting time. Um, once people start to to get on this um, journey and ditch the old one in the sense of chemical imbalance theory hasn't worked for us, there's still so many people who are just clinging on to that one. I mean, I kind of think they'll go down with the Titanic. Uh, they're holding on to the bitter end. But... Um, but there's there is a an explosion of research on the microbiome at the moment. We you know the hype is is bigger than than the data in that we there's not a lot that we can confidently say about it um, around well, what should you do to feed your your microbiome? <coughs> um, and we've done uh, some I've dabbled a little bit in this area with probiotic studies. And we um, we didn't find an effect of using probiotics on depression. Might have been the strain we used. It might have been the type of people who were enrolled in our study. It might have been that it wasn't long enough. But so you know that that so you know that was a bit sobering to find absolutely no effect in that from that study. So it's mm. it's it, we need to refine it. It's not that I'm saying that it was it's a useless avenue. Of course it's not. But we just need to perhaps explore it, and we do need to explore it in in greater depth. So there's the exciting, um, you know, avenues that people are exploring, and and I we may or may not get involved in this, um, which is the poo sample, the the you know the fecal sampling that um, where you essentially find someone who is healthy and of great mental state, and 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 you um, consume their microbiome. As, as delightful as that sounds, they've done it uh, with other disorders. Um, it has not been done with humans with psychiatric illness, but it is a way forward and something to explore. I, you know, I, again, Felice Jack, I know, is involved in some of the preliminary uh, studies on that. As I said, um, we, we, we looked into getting some funding for this, didn't get it, um, and... Uh, so it's kind of on hold. We may, I might ex explore that one again. We are looking at microbiome uh, uh, samples from people who have been in our research and who have been exposed to micronutrients to see whether or not that sort of gives us a better sense of the mechanism of action. We are in very, very early days on this, um, but it, it it's you know, turning out to be quite interesting. And so it's sort of watched the space of what we might uncover on that front. We are also exploring the mitochondria and whether or not micronutrients um, can tune them up, like get them to work a little bit more um, effectively. And we are doing experimental research on that front at the moment. So again, watch the space. It may, may be really exciting um, or it may come to nothing. So we are we we in my lab are we're tr we're trying to do a multiple number of things. One of them is this exploration of mechanism of action. Why is it if somebody gets better 
um, what might be going on, what changes have we had on their, perhaps on their mitochondria or their 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 microbiome or on their um, nutrient levels? What how how can we explain it? Why do some people not respond? So we are trying to explore these questions. They are very difficult because there's it's incredibly complex and so many different uh, variables are involved. So it's going to take a while to uncover that. And we do need a lot larger samples and we need a lot more money to really uh, uncover some of these questions. So we are doing that, but we're also trying to say, how far can we go with the nutrient um, uh, avenue? Uh, what disorders respond, what don't respond, and then how do we get this? If it does work for some people, how can we get this embedded in the public health system? Because I'm really... Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm very wedded to ensuring that if we do show benefit, that the public benefit from it. And that is the tr very tricky thing is this uh, translation of research to practice. It apparently takes 17 years. We've only been going for 10. So, um, but I, I don't, th I, I'm optimist. I don't think it'll be another seven years. And then suddenly you go to your GP and they, they suggest micronutrients instead of an antidepressant. I don't think it's going to be that soon. But we are chipping away at that and trying very hard to get this uh, this information in the public arena and in the politicians uh, in front of them so that they can choose to ignore it if they want to. Um, but at least they've, they've taken that choice to ignore data. And um, yeah, that's, that, that's always going to be about politics, isn't it? Mm. Um, so yeah, so we've got lots. Of, it's not just one thing. We are, I mean, I... I think there's a great opportunity of exploring just dietary manipulation. So there are people who, you know, I've been quite interested in the ketogenic diet. What um, opportunities are there for using that for the treatment of mental illness? It has some good research for the treatment of epilepsy. But when it comes to mental illness, there isn't any. Is there an opportunity there of exploring that type of diet for people who are really struggling and not responding to other treatments? Um, and then, of course, there's just, you know, the regular thing of let's just see if we shift people towards the Mediterranean diet, which has got the most research, uh, you know, how much of a change can we make? And then there's prevention. We're also, you know, that's always on the back of my mind, too. We're, we're exploring, you know, people who are struggling, who have developed mental illness. How do we get this into the schools such that we can, and into, well, not even schools, to be honest, you need to get women eating well during pregnancy. That's, and even before that, you know, when the, the sperm are being formed, let's get it right there. And, mm -hmm. you know, nutrition plays a role in terms of how healthy your sperm are going to be. So... That is another area we're exploring at the moment. We've got a study going at the moment, which is looking to see whether or not nutrients during pregnancy to, can help uh, women who are struggling with low mood and anxiety. And uh, we're also interested in the effects on their offspring. So, But really getting uh, women to understand how critical it is that when they are pregnant, they need to think carefully every time they put something in their mouth, whether or not this is going to be nourishing for their baby. So that's that's where we need that's early intervention. And so when I was talking about schools, that's the next, you know, that's in a way not as early as I'd like it to be, but it's at least earlier than, you know, your your 20, 30, 40 year olds coming into the office who have got chronic you know, you know, mood issues that have been going on for years. Let's get it early. Yeah. Uh, so I've had friends getting IVF and, and that 
they don't eat breakfast, they're constantly stressed. And, and I'm like, how does your body want to produce a, a child when you're in this? But no, yeah. but but they'll jump to this hugely expensive, complicated process before they'll um, yeah have some vegetables for breakfast. And um, <laughs> I, I, uh, but I read this great book called Willpower Doesn't Work. I've been giving it to everyone. It's all that you end up being a product of your environment. Um, if everyone around you behaves a certain way, then you just through osmosis kind of thing. Um, Absolutely. I mean, if it when it starts to be um, unfashionable to eat certain types of foods, then you will change your behavior. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it, sometimes it does take uh, policies, government policies, for that to happen, um, or sometimes it does take a shift of, of you know, like-minded individuals bringing enough attention to something that it's there's suddenly uh, the tipping point such that everybody changes. It's like the the plastic straws is, uh, I think, a really good example of of where. Uh, the person who came up with that idea of let's just focus on one thing uh, made a lot of makes a lot of sense to me now that you don't take the entirety the whole problem of plastic you just look at the one little one let's take just one piece of this and and get people publicly aware yeah I'm fascinated by this um like Peter Thiel talked about how engineers don't value salespeople and salespeople don't value engineers and, <laughs> right. and I feel like there's coming from an advertising background to match this amazing research with with that you're doing with, you know, like how does pop culture work and how do you create I think that's just a fascinating intersect to, you know, what creates that yes. that viral change. Um I know. Um, That's right. It's I, I guess I just always think about the tipping point. I think that was Malcolm Gladwell yeah. came with that, and um, I, I like that concept. And I'll just keep going for it. We're just just we're going to get there. We just we just have to keep slogging away in the interim, and then suddenly be like, "What was all that effort for?" Yeah, fantastic. Uh, um, yeah. And and from a psychologist's perspective, is there one new belief or a belief that's really served you in your in your life, um, or or a belief you picked up recently? Um, um, I don't know what you're thinking of or what you're asking me. Um, a belief. I'm blank on that belief. I, I mean, I, I I don't know if I can say much that's going to be that inspirational. Um, I just uh, believe in the science that we, you know, in the data. And we just need to um, keep presenting that such that you can't ignore it. Mm. And, and, and I know there's so many young people who are so passionate about health and, and mental health. And, and where would you direct, say, a really passionate teenager or, or, or someone at university who wants to <laughs> maybe even look to be part of solving this problem or um, they've got a passion for psychology or, you know, yeah. nutrition um, yeah. Is there anywhere you'd point them, you know, look at your industry in 10, 20 years or? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question and one that you could perhaps ask my vice chancellor on that one. Um, they, the University of Canterbury has just started the Kia Topu program, which is looking at food, but it's not, it, it's the issue of health is a little, a little bit peripheral to it. 
Um, but at least it might open up some more avenues for research and opportunity for students to explore this area if it's if it's done in that way. And I can't predict the direction that it's going to go at my university. So you ask a really, really important question, which I haven't solved um, fully yet. And it needs more than just me, because uh, I, I believe that we do need um, this uh, a field of nutritional psychiatry or nutritional psychology is sort of uh, the psychiatry one is the one that's been a little bit um, got more ground. Um, but just this intersection between those two fields of discipline and seeing how to meld them and um, come up with something that is really going to propel us forward. Uh, the best that we do here at Canterbury is if a, a course on mental health and food that I offer at the fourth year alongside uh, a chemist, a, a biochemist um, and toxicologist, uh, Professor Ian Shaw, who some people may know because he he's been on the uh, TV a lot. He was in the that series of what is in your food or, you know. And he's written a book, what is, you know, is it safe to eat? And so he, he's quite a popular public figure. So we, we run this, co-teach co this, this course, and it's been really fun. And we've been doing it for four years now. So that is an opportunity, but only for people who have gone through essentially Canterbury psychology and or come to do honors here. And then I take a, a very small number of graduate students. So I, I mean, small in terms of relative to the demand, but large in terms of supervision load. So I have a lot of PhD students um, and I've, but I've, I'm maxed out. I can't, can't physically take any more. Um, and I can't, you know, so we need more people who, who get hired at universities that are doing this type of work to um, really ex explore or other areas of research as well. So um, this is what's going to happen is that, you know, we get to a point where the research is exciting. We need more. We need to be training more people, but the infrastructure isn't there yet to support it. So that needs to change. I don't know of anywhere in New Zealand where you can get this type of tuition in both areas, um, but I hope that it will change. Um, Deacon, again, going back to Deacon, they, uh, Felice Jack has done really well. I've uh, got a lot of funding. They do um, seem to be working on providing uh, more courses in this area. Mm. So I, I'm hopeful that that this does, this space does change. And I'm hopeful the University of Canterbury leads the way. Uh, but I can't do that without the support from above. Mm. And um, I know time flies when you're just <laughs> talking about your passion and, and I'm just mindful of your time. So maybe just a couple of questions to sure. um, wrap it up. But I know like you're doing so much research work and working at a desk, you know, when you, when you get overwhelmed or unfocused or have you got good ways to reset um, yourself and find some clarity? You know, you mentioned just getting out and walking and, um, but I know that's yeah. a big one for me is, is this kind of office culture where you're stuck in, mm. you're stuck inside and it's just, it's just for your posture and for your own health and not moving the body for the mitochondria. <laughs> right. I thought, yeah, I didn't know whether you had any, I spoke to an amazing, one of the world's top entrepreneurs last week and he sets a timer every 50 minutes. 
That's that's a great idea. Um, I guess it's really uh, good. I have a, a bicycle under my desk, which actually just oh, reminded wow. me of. It's that funny because I I I came in. I just came in just before this, and I normally um I, my my rule is that whenever I the, I'm on the phone, I should be bicycling, but I haven't done that. So thank you for reminding me about that one. Um, but it's it's just a mobile bicycle, like it's just a little thing. So that is one of the things I do. I try my absolute best if I can to incorporate yoga, um, just ensuring you just keep moving and um, eating well. So snacks that are beside my desk are, you can't see them here, but I've got an, an apple, I've got nuts, um, and I've got an orange somewhere that might even be in the background on my desk <laughs> over there. Um, so that you're not you making healthy decisions because they're there. Um, so those types of things. I do. I am active. I'm always like going up and down. The I never use the lift. I said that don't use your lift, and I'm on the fourth floor, so I am up and down the stairs um, frequently. And my door is always open, so I always. I, it's a it's a busy lab. There are people. There's. I'm not just just staring at my screen all the time. <laughs> and but we can always do better. I love it. I love the under the under the desk bike. Um, <laughs> Love cycling. And See, there's bicycle in the back, but that only gets used um, around the university if I have somewhere to go. So, um, sadly, it always has a flat tire, so I have to always <laughs> that out first, which is a little annoying. And have you got a um, a favorite failure or a failure that's led you to later success? Um, favorite a favorite one or one that's um, <laughs> memorable? I know uh, Sarah Blakely, who dad used to ask her as a child when she came home what what did she fail at today is as a way of like she was pushing herself and and it was and it was something that can be you know encouraged in terms of a mindset that's okay to you yeah. know and often often in retrospect we're like wow that led me down a different path or that really set me up okay. I don't know if anything comes to mind um I mean, I think we all experience a level of failure as we go through, didn't do quite as well on an exam or didn't get into a program that we wanted to get into. Um, so, you know, I'll, I will have those, those, those similar types of failures in my past. Um, failures. I mean, we've had a lot of roadblocks. Are roadblocks considered failures where we just can't seem to be successful at getting, um, you know, you know, through uh, failing at getting grants, that's definitely, I am a, a winner when it comes <laughs> to um, being completely unable to get, um, to get any type of grant from any government agency like HRC. Um, so that's actually probably up there of, 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 repeated failure on that one uh, but that has has forced me to explore more untraditional ways of raising money for research because I believe in this research it needs mm. to happen and I'm not going to let not getting grants um, stop us from doing it because if I had I would not have done any of this work our first study I I started out our first randomized control trial started out with only a few thousand dollars to get it going and that you know, I did a lot of the labor myself or my graduate students, um, but we had very, very little money. And for most people, they wouldn't start that such a uh, project unless they had a million dollars grant to support that type of work. Whereas I knew it needed to be done. We were going to do it. And so we got started and, uh, you know, I applied for little bits of money and I might get 10,000 here or a couple of, you know, 20,000 somewhere else. 
And so we cobbled it together over time. And then I got a big donation, which was came completely out of, out, uh, you know, completely, unsur- uh, uh, you know, surprise to us. And that's actually what pushed me into the area of, of considering philanthropic funding as a way to support research. We have to be very, very careful when we do that, that it's done in a way that isn't, of course, going to uh, create any biases in our work. Um, we have to be independent. So uh, we have to be very, very careful about how what money we accept in terms of donations. But that really has, you know, the failure of not getting grants has led me down that route. Uh, and I've enjoyed it. I've met some really great people as a consequence of that. And, um, and there are people out there who really want to support this work. And that has been thrilling for us to get that level of support. Mm, fantastic. And is there a, is, have you got a best investment that you've made? Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's an investment on time or a course or a... Um, very difficult questions. Um, <laughs> well, um, I think I think for me sometimes like one course or one um, small experience, maybe even a holiday or some people talk about buying a, a diary or something that is really... Right. Like it's, I guess you could take it at different levels. Um, you could. Like even for me, a Vitamix to make smoothies in the morning has been just a game changer in terms of how much easier it's made my life. I don't know whether there's anything that comes to mind. (laughs) I see. Um, I I was struggling with that one too. These are, I'm not used to these types of questions. Um, a best investment. Um, well, um, I, I'm hoping that the investment in an electrical bike is, is going to, um, I think that's a it's a, a fantastic investment because it does encourage you to get on a bike, especially when you live a little bit further than normal. Um, it just takes, and, and I live on a hill, so the that just that twenty five minute slog at the end of a day going up a hill is has has prevented me from riding a bike. There, my my teenagers don't help on the getting on a bike front because they have cricket gear and all other types of things that do need to be driven around and you can't put that on a bike. So I say, I think it's a good investment for my future self of when my kids learn how to drive, they can have the car Mm. and I'll be more on a bike. And I, again, that's going to be, I think that's a, 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 it's, it goes back to what I was saying before, which is incorporating your exercise into your day Mm. rather than putting it on as an add on. That if I can um, be on my bike more, I I'll be happy. I uh, love it, and um, and and you're passionate about food. Have you got a favorite meal you like to cook <laughs> at home? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, so I have an amazing husband, and he does our cooking. So again, maybe a surprise. Uh, we eat incredibly well, and that is thanks to him. And so I have some a lot of favorites that he makes, and I think it's a you know it's a, it's one of those things where relationships you know there's a division of labor, and this has been a great division of labor, is that I can say, you know what, I think I've just read research and this is the kind of thing that we should be maybe eating more of or less of. And, um, you know, he, he usually takes it on board and suddenly I'm finding that we're having more curcumin, you know, or <laughs> something like that in our food. So, 
Um, that's so in terms of a fan. <laughs> no, uh, I make my muesli. Oh, do you? So I do. Oh. So I make, I make my breakfast, but that is how far it goes. And then, um, that is, that is how it works in my household. Fantastic. That kind of leads me into my, uh, my, my favorite question, which is what do you think your unique ability or superpower is? Cause I, I've got this concept from the world's best entrepreneur that we've all got, uh, we're just good at kind of three activities really and we, we get them widened when we're seven years old and they're constantly motivating and energizing and for some people that might be cooking for some people it might be you know researching and but if we stay in that area we're just constantly energized and motivated and excited and we can right. delegate the things we're not so good at who, who yeah and, and those activities <laughs> might you yeah, like for cooking some people love it some people don't but um mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think your unique ability is? Is it because you're great at speaking, researching, but is there, what, is there one activity or a couple of activities that really excites you that you could just constantly do? Okay. Um, yeah, another question I haven't been asked <laughs> to think about. So uh, what do I think? I, so to yeah, you're asking me to think about what do I think is and talk about what I think is I'm good at. So um, I'd say – something that I developed very early on is problem solving. And, um, and I, that was certainly talked to by my father who, um, you know, when, when, when I'd be trying to get my head around math concepts, mm. he, we would just always work really hard on just, if you could ans- understand the problem, then you can always find the solution if you can understand this. So I'm, it, it uh, led me down a track of never trying to avoid memorization of anything at all. So physics, chemistry, math, I mean, I'm a science uh, you know, geek. So that was very helpful in that field. Maybe in other areas, you may need to do a little bit more memorizing, but if you could solve the problem. So I think that I've ended up with a lot of problems to try to solve um, around our research and moving it forward and trying to battle our way through a lot of obstacles that have been put in our way. And I, I assume that that has um, played, has been um, a strength and has played a role in our success. Um and that I don't give up. I'd say I'm definitely, um, I've got a stubbornness that is intractable that I think is essential, absolutely essential for this work. Because again, uh, people would have given up a long time ago, um, you know, in terms of if you consider how many obstacles we've gone through. And then you mentioned the, um, the speaking, um, I loved, I mean, again, as a kid, I loved drama. I loved being on the stage. I wasn't going to be an actress or an actor, but I did enjoy that, um, you know, that aspect of life, of, of, of public speaking. And I'm delighted that I've been able to find a way of staying on the stage. And uh, I, I, I hope it's, uh, you know, I try not, I don't want it to be boring. I do, I do try very hard and work hard on, on that presentation style and capturing your audience. And I think that my love of what I do, um, shines through, I, I, you know, at least I hope that it shines through. And if you can do that, then I think you will capture the imagination of the people you're speaking to. Uh, love it. It definitely does. And, um, 
you've, you've kind of covered it through the talk, I guess, but are, are there top, the last question, are, are there kind of three top tips for a happy, um, fulfilled life or that come to, <laughs> come to mind? I know that's always a tough one. To, I haven't finished life yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only halfway through, hopefully, um, based on statistics. So um, top tips. Um, I think you need to ensure that you're surrounded by some people who really support what you do. And I have some really solid individuals who um, who support what I do and, and stay surrounded by people like that. And those who are toxic, do your best to not hang, in, hang out with them too much because they, they are draining. And um, I, I definitely sometimes need to just go, let it go. They're, it's it's not worth <laughs> It's not worth the energy and the battle. Um, they'll come around hopefully eventually, but for the meantime, don't be zapped by them. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'd say that's so ensuring that you have a good social connection of people who are like-minded is going to be an important part of, again, facing the demons and facing the difficult times um, and, and really just always putting yourself number one in terms of looking after your health and because um, you can't be helping others if you're unhealthy, un- if you're unhealthy yourself so making as I said I talked about you know eating well and exercising and and sleeping well has been important so did I cover it yet yeah that's, <laughs> that's fantastic I've heard I, I think the environment and the positive people thing is just and it's just massive. You're the average of the five people you're around. So, um, yeah, yeah, I love that. And I, and I see there's still the give a little page up, um, which people can donate at for food for thought. And is there yeah. anything else? Cause I'm, I know so many people are passionate about this subject and would love to, um, give in some way. Um, so there's the food for thought page of there. Any other places you want to send people, um, to support your work or just to, to, for research or anything else? Right. Um, well, you can like our Facebook page. You can help us with recruitment for, for research because we can't um, – if we don't have participants and people who are willing to in, engage in our research, then we can't provide you with the data and we can't, we can't move forward. So our research participants are gold to us. We treat them um, incredibly well. I think they'd agree, but we do need uh, participants participants in our research. So I would say that is my absolute top request is that we have two studies running at the moment. One of them is looking for women who are struggling with low mood and anxiety during pregnancy. Um, if they're in their second trimester, not on medications, we are we want them and we want to help them ultimately, but we need them for being able to determine whether or not nutrients is a viable way forward to treat um, mental health issues during pregnancy. And then we have a depression and anxiety study in the community where we're looking for people, again, who are struggling with low mood and or anxiety, who are who just need to go to their GP, who are in the Canterbury area. And um, we are interested in them. So, research app participants, absolutely. If we that that we we put a lot of in, money into trying to recruit, and so if we could, if that could be just somehow oh, wow. simpler, that you don't have to pay for advertising. That we are, you know, we we are always putting ads on with our Facebook page. 
liking our Facebook page. Um, I'm, we are very easy to find. If you just look for Julia Rutledge, um, it comes up the Mental Health and Nutrition Research Group. And if they want to donate, they can do it through that Give a Little, or they can give directly to the University of Canterbury, the UC Foundation. And they have a, a Dropbox. Um, and Mental Health and Nutrition Group is listed in their Dropbox of places that you can donate. So it's very easy. But I'd say, yep, participants is my priority. We need money. Um, that's all. <laughs> always helps. Um, and then, and then inspiring young people to want to do this kind of uh, work. I do get a lot of emails from people on that topic, and I'm I'm so excited and thrilled. Um, we we just need to do a little bit about uh, changing the infrastructure in order to really support them. But I do 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 I do teach at University of Canterbury from. Um, undergraduate first year, third year honors, and then graduate. So if people like what I do, they can come to University of Canterbury. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Um, Julia and, and, and all your work and, and yeah, would love to help out with the, the recruitment and the, the funding. I think it's such a fantastic initiative. And Yes. If yeah. you can, that would be great. You're, but you're in Auckland, aren't you? So yeah, I've got my, my cousins live down in Christchurch. Though. I've got a lot of golf friends down there, and um, and I need to get back down there soon. So I'm sure I can yeah. wrangle some, and <laughs> you never know who might be listening to the podcast as well. So right, um, yeah, we just need to get the word out there. We've had, um, you know, in the pregnancy study, I think a lot of people are concerned about taking nutrients, and so. Uh, we've all I can say is that we've had I think we're at 19 healthy babies born. Um, you know they've all come out with you know 10 fingers, 10 toes. Um, they're coming at term, which is a good thing. So um, uh, you know the the mums are are very very positive about having participated in the research, and so I can only attest to what we've seen so far. And um, you know there are you know there, we can never say something is completely safe. In life, um, but we do think that the risks associated with taking nutrients, if they exist, are probably pretty low. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, I've, I've looked at some research myself with um, with trauma and stress and lack yeah, lack of nutrients in the mother, and how it does start. So much of it starts with the mother. Um, yeah, and at home. So I think that's such a neat neat project. So you would love to help out there if we can. I, that'd be great. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, oh, thanks so much for your time, and uh, you would okay. love to hopefully meet you in person and get to your next talk or event sometime. And um, beautiful. Okay. Okay. See All you, right. Julia. All right. Take care. Bye. Well, what an episode. I say that every time, but this one really was. I think the guests, the people I get to interview and hear from, and all this new amazing information. It's just we just live in a remarkable time. And um, I think we need to remind ourselves of that. It's just, although we do have these problems, it is just such a wonderful world to be living in, such a wonderful time where we have opportunities to, to meet people like Julia, to heal this information, to, to find solutions um, to these problems. So super excited about the work Julia's doing, about getting more nutrients, organic foods, green leafy vegetables and uh, fruits in the diet. That's a must. Um, and 
and just providing these better solutions and changing the medical model to something that's more integrative, preventative, lifestyle, and stress reduction based. So hopefully got plenty out of the episode. I did too. Thank you so much for listening. If you can, leave a review, spread the message, check out Julia's work, and um, think less, experience more. And as always, hope you dug it. <laughs>